0: You have something that, you know, kind of on the kids' playground playing kickball, you get that do over if you don't kick it well. Is there something you would do over? You got something that you're thinking of if you could travel back in time and take that one back? You know, they always say, I don't know why this is true, but hindsight's always 2020. Why can't it be 2020 looking forward instead of 2020 looking backwards? I'd like forward looking 2020, not backwards looking 2020. I don't know about you, but I don't, know, I don't know if I would take that ride. You know, ultimately, if God's the author of our story, and if you've had this human experience like I have, I've probably learned more from my failures than I have from my successes. I'm not, there's some things I'm not proud of that are the things that come to mind, but yet I go, God used those to mature me and give me wisdom that I would not have if I had not been through it. I don't know if it'd be. I don't know if it be wrong to take that trip. It, it might be, you know, because God sovereignly wanted me to have that experience, so that would be, you know, the person I am today and the person that you are today. There are a lot of people that are not at peace with their past. I mean, you you've had family discussions, water cooler conversations, family reunions, where there's that woulda, shoulda, coulda that's expressed, and, and maybe. Even you yourself have said, man, you know, my life would be so much different if I'd only done X, Y, and Z. The truth is, there's a lot of people that not only don't have peace with their past, they don't have peace with their present. They're just not happy with the way things are working out. I don't know if you know how audacious this is, but there is an experience that is common to probably every single one of us that... um, most of the world has never experienced. Okay? Do I got your curiosity up? What is something that we in this room have probably all experienced that most of the world has never even conceived of? You know what it is? Returning a gift. Think about it for a second. Anybody ever gotten bought something? Marcy, you better raise your hand because every article of clothing I have ever bought you has gotten returned. <laughs> <coughs> I am like epic fail at buying women's clothing. So here's a gift card. Congratulations. Anybody, has anybody ever returned a gift? Why? Because you don't like it? It doesn't fit. Or you got so many of them, anyways, you just need to get rid of it, you know? I don't need another golf club. I don't need that book. I've got a duplicate. Yeah, most of the world, if you gave a gift to someone in a foreign country, they would treasure it, even if it was something that was really simple and they don't even have the capacity to return a gift. And like, it's a multi-million dollar business here that we're so discontent with what somebody gives us as a gift that we're going to instead return what they gave us to get something that we really prefer. Does that sound a little odd when you kind of put it in those terms? That sounds strange. And so contentment is an issue for us. We're going to look at a verse today <clears throat> as we continue in this series of uh, that verse. I don't think it means what you think it means. And we deal with an oldie but a goodie where Paul makes an incredibly bold statement. In Philippians chapter 4 verse, th- verse 13, he says, I can do, what's the word? What's the word? All things through Christ. Dot, dot, dot. I can do all things through Christ. <clears throat> and here's just a little... This is, this is a freebie. It's a little tiny little bit of Bible study wisdom. Sometimes when you read the verse that comes right before or right after the verse that you're focused on, it really opens up a whole new universe of knowledge. And the truth is, how many of you have heard somebody claim Philippians 4.13 in the most epic fail way possible? You know, Um, Colin is, uh, has just recently discovered, uh, believes that he's going to be God's gift to flag football and, uh, never played flag football, but we're going for an evaluation Thursday night at six 30. And he's just like, listen, you better call the press, you know, get my agent there. We're ready to go. So one of the things that we have enjoyed, (laughs) I'm going to be in trouble when I get home now. Um, one of the things that we have enjoyed is going to YouTube and watching epic fails of um, little eight-year-old football players who get so caught up in the moment that they recover the fumble that they don't realize that they're, you know, heismaning it into the wrong end zone. And, you know, everyone's yelling, turn around, turn around. Epic fail. And yet, it's athletes who, you know, are in the, the powerlifting competition. You know, I can do all the things through Christ who strengthens me and gets it up right about here. And then he goes... Boom. Epic fail. When you rip a verse out of its context, that verse in particular can mean all kinds of really wacky things. As a matter of fact, every man that I know who has ever played church league softball has quoted that verse as they're tapping off their shoes, getting up to the plate, and they think that it's a promise that they're going to rip the cover off the ball and yank it over the fence because they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. This is not a comprehensive statement about a Christian's abilities. It does not mean that you will have x-ray vision, that you'll be faster than a train or able to leap small buildings in a single bound. And yet the same way that people talk about this sometimes, I hope I'm not crazy, that would be bad, um, especially for you all. (laughs) Sometimes the way that I hear people talk about this verse, they really do kind of make it sound like Christians have some kind of superpower going on. No, we do it's just not the way that people are usually talking about it kids school for most of you has started this week and all god's children said oh no <laughs> this does not mean that you're going to be able to pass a test that you've never studied for i'm sorry you can quote it you can believe it but you are going down if you have not studied for that test think about this from a moral perspective okay Have you ever heard someone claim the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me for something that you know that God doesn't want? This verse is not an excuse to intoxicate, adulterate, fornicate, deprecate, or abdicate your responsibility. God is not in the business of helping you do things that his word says are clearly out of bounds. So what in the world does this verse mean? Well, when you look at the context, it makes it incredibly and abundantly clear. It's just not what most people are interested in. So look with me in Philippians chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 10 through, um, oh, 10 through 14. Let's do that. Paul says this I have rejoiced in the Lord greatly that once again you renewed your care. For me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but you lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret, the only time that word is used in the entire New Testament. I've learned the secret of being content whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship. Paul begins in verse 10 by making a statement that he is rejoicing in the Lord for the Philippians' gift. Now, we could stop with the very first few words In in Philippians 4.10, and that is a sermon for some of you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Anybody need any help with that? Paul's not rejoicing necessarily in the gift. The gift is the occasion through the Philippians' generosity for him to say thank you to the Philippians, but to see God's provision in it. Do you think that there's just a, a little bit of difference between rejoicing in a gift and rejoicing in the Lord? Think about your typical Christmas morning, okay? Moms and dads, you know this, and your kids don't. They're they're not mature enough to be able to understand it. But why do you, besides you have to, why do you buy gifts for your kids? Because you love them. And and the dollars that are spent on those goodies are an expression of love. And yet sometimes they open one gift, look at it, and their eyes get big, and they go, oh, thank you so much. Where's the next one? And they move on to the next one. They move on to the next one. They're rejoicing in the gift instead of understanding that every gift that they have received is this incredible sacrifice on a parent's part to demonstrate, in a very tangible sense, love for your kids. Now, most of you probably don't get that philosophical on Christmas morning, but it's true, right? That's why we do what we do. And so he is rejoicing in the Lord. My question, kind of application-wise for you, would be, do you just rejoice or do you rejoice in the Lord? There's just a little bit of difference between those two things. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that once again, or at last, you renewed your care for me. This is not a rebuke. I think sometimes the way that we read it in an English translation is we think Paul's like Paul's like saying, thanks, it's about time. That is not it at all. Um, Paul was a traveling man. And so when he got chased out of Philippi, he goes somewhere else and kind of goes where the spirit blows, and he shares the gospel wherever. Well, the Philippians are really interested in supporting him, and they've got to track him down. Although there's a little problem. Where is Paul when he writes the letter of Philippians? He's in prison. He has disappeared, literally, off the face of the earth. He's in a uh, prison that is underground. He's lowered into a hole in the ground that is a a prison. He has disappeared off of the face of the earth. So they are trying to be benevolent. They're trying to support him, And they don't know. You've heard of where's Waldo? Where's Paul? Where's Paul? We cannot find him. So he is not implying any fault. He's simply saying they lack the opportunity because it couldn't quite track him down. Hey, have you seen Paul? Well, yeah, he was here in Lystra. I think he's in Derby now. So they go to Derby. Where's Paul? I don't know. He was here and then he went somewhere else and then we haven't heard from him. So what he's saying when he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that once again you renewed your care for me. He's saying that communication has been reestablished after a period of some silence, of some uh, break in the relationship. Some people say that Paul's rejoicing in this gift that the Philippians gave is a sign of spiritual immaturity in Paul. Isn't he like a kid on Christmas Day opening a present going, oh, thanks for the goodies. Is this a sign of weakness? No. Paul had legitimate needs. He had nothing that he owned with him. Not that we know that he owned a lot of stuff. But he's in prison. He's barely sustained. I mean, his, his subsist, subsistence level is barely above what it takes to keep you alive. He's a prisoner, so it's bread and water. And so he had legitimate needs, and the satisfaction of those needs should never be construed as the real measure of his joy. Why? Because he rejoiced, how? In the Lord. He rejoiced in the Lord. So his, he's seeing God's hand at work in his life through this gift But then he kind of turns around and he says, guys, I am so grateful for the gift you gave. But I need to tell you something. I didn't need it. Now that sounds like a little bit of a backhanded compliment. But we see this kind of fleshed out in verses 11 and 12. Paul is deeply grateful for the gift. He has said he has rejoiced in the Lord over their provision. But he says that he has come to discover a very important principle. He says, as a matter of fact, that he's learned a secret. And I've already told you that that word that I've learned a secret, all one word in Greek, is the only time it occurs in the New Testament. So that should be a clue for you to say, Paul's learned a secret. I'm going to tune in. I'm going to listen really carefully. I want to focus on this. What's the secret? He says it a couple of times. He says three times he's learned something. He says, verse 11, look. I have learned to be content. Verse 12, I know both how to have a little, I know how to have a lot in any and all circumstances. I have learned the secret of being content. What's his secret? How to be content. Here's what I want you to do. Looking at the scriptures, I want you to see the extent of his content, his, his contentedness. What is the extent of his content? What's he say? He says a couple things. He says, uh, verse 11, <clears throat> I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances. He says in verse 12, I know how to have a little, I know how to have a lot in any and all circumstances. So he says three things about the extent of his content. Whatever, and that's not like teenager, whatever. It's whatever. Whatever. Any and all. So what what exceptions is he giving to his contentedness? Zero. So that means over here, if he's in prison and he's got rats for roommates and he's eating stale bread and filthy water, none of your Brita stuff, I mean, this is nasty stuff, that means here as well as, you know, having the opportunity to preach the gospel at the Areopagus to the most intelligent uh, people on the face of the planet from the most servile of circumstances to the most um, astute of audiences. He says, whatever. Whatever circumstances I am in, I have learned to be content. Now, our African-American brothers and sisters have done us all a favor because in a very sing-songy way, they have taught us something that we know to be true, but we live like it's not. They'll frequently remind their brothers and sisters in Christ that God is good, and all the time, well, you know that, right? Why don't you live like it? Because a lot of times when I listen to people's prayer requests, it sounds like God could be better. And it sounds like I'm really kind of dissatisfied if God would just been paying attention a little bit more. Like my neighbor doesn't go to church. He's the one that should have got the cancer diagnosis. I mean, doesn't God know that I, I tithe? You're like, so you want me to stop that? Because like, man, he ain't paying attention to my needs. And the implication is that God's mostly good most of the time. That's tough. He, Paul provides some contrast here to show that God is indeed good all the time. Here's the contrast: Paul says, Whether I have a little or whether I have a lot. Paul proves that he was certainly not a Baptist because he says, Whether I'm well-fed or hungry. And there ain't ever been a Southern Baptist that's ever been hungry. He says, whether I have an abundance or whether I have need. He is showing that the extent of his contentedness in God's provision covers every circumstance. On rainy days and on sunny days, on summer days and on winter days, in feast and in famine, he is content. Now, it's important here because I think there's, there's when we talk about contentedness, there's a very real danger for Christians to, to not become Christian, but, be, but, to, but to become Greek philosophers. Paul was most definitely not a Stoic. Stoicism was a form of Greek philosophy that was kind of the que sera, sera. What happens will happen. Um, very impassive. Um, you know, I'm not going to get too up. I'm not going to get too down. And very fatalistic. You know what? I can't change it anyway. So whatever happens, happens. How do we know Paul was not a Stoic? How do you start verse 10? I rejoiced. Stoics don't rejoice. And then Paul amplifies it. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord, not in His circumstances. So guys, listen. I think there's a way that, and and I think, I can't say this without exception. I'm guilty of it. And my bet is that you probably are too. Maybe, Maybe not there's an acceptable way for us to complain about God's goodness, and it's called prayer requests. And I wish I was joking about this. But aren't some of your prayer requests just dressed-up complaints? You, you, you got them dressed up for church, because heaven, heaven knows, heaven forbid, you don't dress up for church. You know, so you dress up your complaint, and you, form, you, you it's like Jeopardy. You ask it in the form of a question. You, know, you put it in the form of a prayer request and now you can complain about whatever circumstances you want. But you've asked for other people to pray for you, so it's okay. I'm, I am wrestling with the question, is it ever acceptable for a Christian to complain about anything? I'm going to let that hang there for a second. Because the minute you complain about anything, you're implying that God could have and maybe should have done something different. Is it ever okay for a Christian to complain? I'm not going to answer that too quickly because, you know, in the Psalms, there are definitely laments. You know, I, I think that that's there. I just don't know that your, your situation qualifies to be put on the same condition as a lament psalm. Uh, there's bad things that happen. And uh, the Bible doesn't want us to put up with injustice, doesn't want us to put up with persecution, wants us to endure that well. But I'll tell you, I hear enough complaining within the church that it makes me wonder if we're really complaining against the character of God. And you know what? Things might have turned out differently if you would have chose differently. A lot of the the things that you want to complain about, you have some moral culpability for. And so don't blame God for bad decisions that you have made. Um, Be real careful about that because I think what you complain about Paul would have said, I've learned to be content in any and all circumstances, in whatever happens. And we don't sound like we have that same kind of maturity. So what are we asking you to do? It's really simple. Um, Bad things happen, and they stink. I'm not asking you to rejoice in your circumstances, and neither is the Bible. How does it say, "I, I, I rejoiced in my circumstances greatly. Now my circumstances stink. I'm in jail. I rejoiced in the Lord. And so here's what's amazing. People who receive terrible news, cancer, broken legs, failed marriages, loss of a loved one, can with tears streaming down their face still praise God not for their circumstances, but for God, for His fellowship for his nearness, for the solace that he provides. And I just, I just wonder, if we did not complain about our circumstances as much as our non-Christian friends, would our faith actually shine with more clarity in a dark world? If you don't sound any different than your non-believing co-workers, it might be because you're not. Paul learned to be content in the Lord in all circumstances. Now, here's the encouragement for you. Paul says twice that he learned this. So if Paul, the apostle, had to learn it, if you don't like ace this exam like right from the gate, just know that there's probably some stuff for you to learn too. It's not a lesson that you just master really quickly. It is something that you have to learn and be disciplined about. So don't be discouraged if you've not mastered it. But don't you want to reflect to a watching world complete and extreme contentedness in God's godness. That he's in charge. Not, man, I got a raw deal. God must have been asleep. He must have been paying attention to China or something around the world when this happened. No, he's in charge and he's always good. Paul says, I'm content with much or with little. We know that Paul was very uh, wealthy, well-educated before he became a Christian. He says, whether I have a lot, I'm content. Whether I have nothing, and I'm, I'm tempted to think, that for Paul, when he says, when I have a lot or when I have, I have nothing, I've learned to be content, I'm persuaded to think that Paul thought times of prosperity were just when he was not actively suffering. Hey, I'm not being flogged, shipwrecked, stoned, or imprisoned. This is a time of plenty. I don't actually have anything, but I'm not actually actively being persecuted. This is a time of plenty. And yet for us, we have the, the picture of the Thanksgiving cornucopia. That's plenty. And Paul's just going, hey, uh, lack of suffering, that's all. That's great. I've learned to be content with suffering, but man, I really enjoy these times of plenty when I'm not suffering. Verse 13, he makes this tremendous statement. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Again, we're not making this a comprehensive statement about a Christian's abilities. Paul's actually doing something really interesting here. When (laughs) When most Christians quote this verse, it sounds like they're bragging. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Paul, actually, by looking at the context and saying, I've learned how to deal with nothing, less than what you want. I've learned to be content with that. He's actually showing humility. And and not saying that he has the resources or the fortitude to deal with the circumstances. The only way that he is strong enough to deal with them is through Christ who strengthens him? He does not have the ability in his own. So instead of proud boasting, this is actually a statement of very humble dependence. He's not saying, I'm going to score a touchdown. I'm going to yank the ball over the fence. I'm going to go yard. He's saying, I can't do anything. I cannot be content in these circumstances without him. And friends, that is the point. The point is not that you can do something crazy and that God's giving you strength to do Whatever selfish thing you want to do, Paul's making the point that through Christ he is strengthened to be content in all circumstances. That the strength that he's got is not for x-ray vision. It, it's empowerment that Christ gives to bring contentedness. And here's a here's a background of the story that you might not know. Of all the churches that Paul planted, the Philippians were perhaps one of the poorest. They were not known as a very particularly wealthy congregation. And so for them to give a gift to Paul, which it was not a new car, it was probably some kind of monetary gift. Um, I don't know how they did that. They don't have banks, you can't wire it. So you got some dude with a sack of money that's running around looking for Paul, you know? Um, I mean, that's really kind of what happens. So you have, follow me, extraordinarily poor people Making extraordinarily sacrificial gifts to give to Paul because he's the apostle to help establish their church and strengthen their church. And Paul basically tells these poor people who have sacrificed for him, I've rejoiced greatly for your gift. And by the way, I have learned to be content in all things. Not a backhanded compliment. What he's saying is the God that has made it possible for me to be strengthened, to deal with abject poverty, will honor your gift and your generosity by meeting your needs too. What an encouragement for him to say, I'm not looking for money. I'm not not trying to get rich. I'm content with what God gives, and this is what God has given me through you. And just as you have sacrificed for me, God will meet your needs. What's that going to do to the church at Philippi? You think it's going to strengthen their resolve to give even more sacrificially? Because the more they give then the more need they have and the more opportunity there's for God to show up. It's this crazy cycle. And this is some kind of next level stuff to think about. But the gift that the Philippians gave was not so much for Paul's benefit as much as what Paul is saying it was for their own spiritual development. It was good that you gave and I will benefit as the recipient, but the blessing that comes to you from you giving sacrificially and then allowing God to come in and meet your needs is even better for the giver than for the givee. It is better to give than to receive. Now this is some next level stuff for you to think about as we kind of come to our closing. There is a very vital and important relationship between three things. Dependence, Contentedness and giving. You drawing some lines there, making some connections here. The Bible says that God loves a joyful giver. If you're not a believer here and you see believers giving sacrificially, you think they're a bunch of nut jobs. I mean, they're, that's ludicrous. Giving up your money, your hard-earned money. But they do it joyfully. Why? Because they are content in what God has provided for them, and their dependence is not on their financial security, it's on God. So I want to make it really clear. You will never be a joyful giver unless you are content in God, and you have cast yourself, your soul, your finances, your security on Him. You want to be generous? God doesn't want your wallet, He wants your heart. And until he owns your heart, you can give gifts as a smokescreen to keep God from aiming at your heart. You can, you can do one of these. You know, put the wallet over your heart and give him 10 bucks a week to keep, you know, say, stay away from my heart. He doesn't want your money. He wants you. And the challenge is when we talk about dependence upon God and contentedness, there is no one that I have ever met who is dependent upon God and contented in their circumstances who is not liberally generous. And friends, that is the kind of liberalism that we want. Not a liberalism of theology or morality, but a liberalism of generosity. And the Philippians got to be that because their, their security was not in anything. And here's the deal. If you are not dependent upon God, if you are not content in His provisions, then anything you lose can absolutely ruin your day. Your new car gets a scratch and you don't, I don't want to run into you. You, know, you, you lose a freedom, you lose a skill, You lose a loved one, you lose some money, you lose your security. Paul had none of those things. And yet he said, I can do all, I I can endure every circumstance. God throws my way because I am content in him. Content in him. And today, most of us know this. Academically. Most of us know this. Far fewer of us practice it. In the challenge today, when we talk about generosity, this is not a, a, a sermon to get you to give money to the church. It is a sermon for you to give your life to the Lord. You can, you can sacrifice all kinds of money, and you can, you can volunteer all kinds of time, and if you have not expressed your contentedness in the Lord by placing your life in His hands, then your money is a, it's a wasted charity. Your your volunteering is a squandered opportunity because now it's just a pat in the back instead of it being something that is an act of worship to God. And so today, if if you find yourself discontent, whether you're a believer or whether you're a non-believer, the result is the same. You need to repent and you need to return. You say, God, forgive me for the ways that I have blasphemed you by implying that you have not been good. For some of you, that's a call to action for you. For others, the call for you today is to recognize that God has taken all of his riches, put them in Jesus, caused him to incarnate himself as a man, to live a sinlessly perfect life, to pay a penalty for sin that maybe you don't even realize that you owe, to be gloriously resurrected so that you, by turning from your sin and trusting in him, can have a new life. God has made a provision for you to find your contentment not in something you can lose, but to gain something that can never be taken away. So today, what do you need to trust him with? To express as an act of devoted worship to him, your contentedness and his provision. It might be money, it might be time, it might be family. it might be you. Will you trust him? Father. We want to be the masters of our own fate, the captains of our own destiny. And you have told us that that journey will not end well if we have not trusted Christ. We don't have to look very far to see that we don't run the world and we don't even run our own lives very well. Haven't we run far enough in the wrong direction to just turn it over to you? So Father, what I love about this message is it it hits our hearts whether we have known you for a long time or whether we are just getting to know you. There are those of us here today that need to turn from our own self-motivated and self-justifying ways to say, God, you are the only one that can provide the solution for my sin. I need to trust Christ. Those of us who have walked with him for a long time know that this is such an elementary lesson that we never really outgrow it. We need to trust Christ. We don't just begin with faith. We walk in faith. And Father, I pray today that whether we have a new baby brother or sister in Christ that needs to trust you today with their life, or whether those of us who are more mature need to trust you with other issues in our circumstances, that you will give us the grace of turning to you, seeking your forgiveness, and trusting you as we walk into the future. You have for us. In Jesus' name we pray.